Thank you for listening. This is Israel Rebound, a podcast joining listeners around the world to Israel, exploring the ties that bind us through culture, identity, and current events. I'm Liz Feldstern in Jerusalem, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alan Podash in California. Alan, how are you? Liz, I, I'm doing great, but I'm very concerned about you and other Israelis and people living in Israel. It's been a kind of a challenging week with all these rockets being fired from Gaza into Israel. Uh, any comments? It has been. So I just have to ask, are you safe? Are you, were you uh, targeted at all? And everybody's okay in your family? Uh, yes, everyone in our family is okay. And I would say that for the most part, yes, we feel safe. Um, Jerusalem often is a little bit insulated from these kind of attacks, right? We're a city with a close to 50% Muslim population. So the motivation for you know, attacking Jerusalem when the accuracy of rockets is not all that great isn't really there, right? Even people who really dislike Israel and would like to destroy Israel um, are are less inclined to aim at Jerusalem. Although we did have a Friday afternoon, some rockets fall uh, just outside of Jerusalem. Um, and once that happens, right, that makes us officially sort of in the range of that ground of attacks. And then, you know, it's more of a possibility that there could be a siren and um, and rockets falling in Jerusalem itself. So, so what do you do as a family to prepare or to anticipate that incident of a rocket coming towards you? Mm-hmm. So in this case, you know, the likelihood was not thought to be terribly high. So it doesn't didn't rise to the level of changing our plans or where we're going or how we're going to get there. But there are things that a family does to prepare. And in our case, uh, I guess we did maybe two things to prepare. One would be just saying to the kids, listen, It is possible that, you know, over Shabbat or over the next couple of days, there could be a siren in Jerusalem. What does that mean if we hear it? Where do we go? You know, reminding them that we have in Jerusalem in this instance, I think they were estimated that we'd have about 90 seconds from the time of a siren until something were to to fall. Um, So that means you can get out of the apartment, you can go down a flight of stairs. And depending on timing, maybe you can go all the way down to the shelter, which we have in the basement of our building, which brings me to the second thing we did, which was to unlock the first door that leads into that uh, sheltered room so that if anybody from the building needed to go down, they could go directly in. Usually the door is locked because there's also, you know, private storage rooms and stuff in there. But in a case like this, you keep it unlocked for the time where there is likely to be an incident. So is there a lot of anxiety with kids over these types of preparations? Or has it become, I hate to say it, has it become uh, an an occurrence that people just know they have to be prepared and to 
run for shelter if need be? So it very much depends on the kids, right? And their just their personal tendencies and how they react to something like this. And of course, that's influenced in part by their by their parents and by the adults they see around them. I would say in this case, because, you know, we very casually said to the kids, listen, it is possible that that will happen. We're, we're all here. We'll go downstairs together. And it then didn't happen. For our kids, this wasn't an anxiety-producing incident. Certainly in other parts of the country where you have a lot of rockets falling, a lot of sirens going off, it is much more high anxiety. I am... And I do remember from a couple of years ago when we did have um, a siren and, and a rocket in Jerusalem. And in that particular case, it, when it happened, we were we were outside and sort of had to go running um, to, to find a building to shelter in. So that was more more dramatic and more traumatic. So that what you're referring to is the rocket attack, I believe, that was generated by Hamas, another terrorist terrorist group in Gaza, this barrage of rockets this time came primarily from another group, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is not as uh, large or as powerful as, as, um, as Hamas. But I think it's important to note that the number of rockets that were fired um, out of Jerusalem out of Gaza into parts of the country was pretty significant. And the IDF posted uh, kind of a breakdown from their perspective, which I'm pretty sure they have the best perspective of of anybody since they're the ones who have to counter the rockets, that mm-hmm. Oper- Operation Shield and Arrow, uh, between May 9th and 13th, there were 1,468 rockets launched towards Israel, That which is a remarkable number. You think about it, 1,400 rockets being fired over a five-day period of time and constantly into a very tiny geographic area right and the other part is the number of rockets that didn't make it into israel that kind of landed within the gaza strip as often happens because to your point the rockets uh that islamic jihad is using uh, are not as sophisticated as the ones maybe that hamas has used in the past but uh, of the 1,468 rockets that were launched, launched in Israel, uh, 1,100 crossed into Israel, 300 landed or misfired into Gaza, and 700 uh, responses by Israel hitting target sites. And 437 of the rockets that were launched into Israel were intercepted by the Iron Dome with a 95.6% success rate. So it's kind of interesting that a country has to have a success rate of eliminating or intercepting rockets that are being attacked or fired into your country at a significant rate of 1,400, you know, over a five-day period of time. That's a significant attack on a country. And this happens on a, I would say on a regular basis, but it happens periodically uh, in Israel's history. You've got two, at least two major groups in Gaza that would like to see Israel eliminated, uh, and they are the Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Hamas. Uh, After the last barrage of rockets that Hamas uh, targeted Israel with, they entered into a ceasefire with an understanding that during the ceasefire, 
in calm between Hamas and Israel, certain um, benefits could be afforded to Hamas. One of them was to allow more people from Gaza to work inside Israel. And one of the fatalities during this rocket attack from Islamic Shad was a person who lives in Gaza but works in Israel and was a victim of one of the rockets that fell into Israel. So again, you've got this complex situation of two major, we'll call them terrorist groups that would like to eliminate Israel. Then you've got Israel who's trying to protect its own people, and they do it through sophisticated matters with the Iron Dome and actually this time with David Sling to protect its people. But yet the terror that people within Israel feel when these incidents take place is significant. And mm -hmm. you, you referenced, you know, this time not so much in Jerusalem, but if you imagine those 1,400 rockets being targeted to you and you're in, in a border uh, area near Gaza, you're constantly running into your your bomb shelter. And that's where most of the, uh, you know, injuries take place is people running to safety. Um, mm -hmm. If you're lucky enough, A, to have a bomb shelter to run to, and B, to be physically able to run. Right? right. I mean, I I often try to remind myself of the people who, you know, live on third, fourth floors, aren't mobile or in a wheelchair or older or have, you know, several little babies at home. I mean, to think about what it means. And, and I mentioned that in Jerusalem, it was estimated that we would have a 90 second window from the siren until impact. In places that are located closer to Gaza, that time is significantly shorter. So it can be that from the time the siren goes off, you have 15 or 30 seconds. That's not a lot of time. No. And you referenced the mobility piece. One of the victims of the rocket attacks uh, this time was a woman in Rehovot who the rocket, you know, uh, landed in the building, was not shot down by the Iron Dome, landed in the building, and she was trying to help her husband, who was in a wheelchair, to safety, and uh, she became a victim of that attack, uh, as well as the, the husband, although she's still, she died and he was in the hospital. So again, you're right about the access to bomb shelters and the time that you have to get there. Um, currently, there is a ceasefire between Israel and Islamic Jihad. There were some tense moments where there was not uh, a, a pure respect of the ceasefire, uh, and Israel responded that we Israel would respond towards Islamic Jihad quiet with quiet and rockets with rockets. So we'll have to see how things turn out. Um, I just want to make a quick comment that the ceasefire was negotiated by Egypt, which again, mm -hmm. think about the, the geopolitical dynamics of the Middle East. Here you have Egypt who is in a cold peace with Israel, and probably not much of a, a relationship with Gaza Strip and Hamas, uh, and uh, Islamic Jihad uh, negotiating this uh, ceasefire. So I found it very, very interesting, and it's a, a good way to learn about uh, uh, political strategies. So we'll see how it, it goes. And Egypt, of course, does have a vested interest in keeping things you know, as peaceable as possible in the region, shares borders with both Israel and the Gaza Strip. So they are a natural figure to to try and help negotiate a ceasefire. Yeah. 
And if I'm not mistaken, back when Israel relinquished um, Sinai back to Egypt, Egypt didn't want the Gaza Strip. So again, part of the negotiation is challenging overall because people recognize the challenges that the Gaza Strip uh, has for the geopolitical impact of the region. So Egypt does have a vested interest, as does Hamas, which currently is both a terrorist group and a civic uh, organization caring for the people in Gaza. As we are both amateurs in this area, I think we did a pretty good job of debriefing and explaining the complexities of the situation. And let's just hope that the ceasefire holds um, and uh, we can hope for that. I, I want to go back to a little something we talked last week, and that's about the budget process that the Knesset is currently working on. I understand that there are municipal strikes taking place over the budget issue. Can you kind of walk us through what that looks like? Yes, if we didn't have enough excitement going on, um, and excitement not of the good kind, with the rockets, we today had multiple large cities all across Israel on strike, uh, not Jerusalem in this case. The impetus for this strike is, as you alluded to, related to the budget. And in particular, a proposal for this national budget, right, to include a tax that would be levied on commercial real estate within cities, the proceeds of which would then be used to promote residential real estate and not necessarily in the same places where. The, those tax dollars are coming in, right? This would be the national government collecting the money and then redistributing it as they see fit. What is the reasoning behind this? We know that there is a housing shortage in Israel. We need to build more residential housing. And one of the thoughts for why this is the case is that municipalities don't actually have an incentive to encourage more residential building because they get more tax dollars from commercial buildings. And this is the national government's idea for a way to change that dynamic and use the existing commercial properties to tax them even more and then use those tax dollars. Uh, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. That's like way above my pay grade in terms of understanding economics, but I can tell you that uh, cities around the country were so up in arms about this that they declared strikes. We know that Israel does have a propensity to strike. I'm still impressed by it every time it happens. Right? For a, a proposed law that, at least to my half-American, half-Israeli ears, sounds like something very... I don't know, like a fine print kind of law that one wouldn't even know about unless you happen to be in the business of commercial real estate. And yet there's enough people paying attention and unhappy about this possibility to go on strike. What does it mean when there's a municipal strike in Israel? It means that the schools are closed. It means that the preschools are closed. It means that uh, all sorts of other municipal services are closed. There's nobody collecting your garbage. There's nobody 
um, providing security in all sorts of buildings within the city. It is a big deal. Um, right? It means parents have to find alternative what to do with their kids. Um, so, so that was pretty interesting. And I'll just note that in addition to the list of Jewish cities in Israel that were part of the strike, there were also at least three of the larger Arab cities. Um, so it seems to be at least consensus amongst different parts of the population that from the perspective of the municipalities, at least, they are not in favor of this new tax. So, so uh, <clears throat> thank you for that description and the connection to uh, also the Arab municipalities. I, I have to say, you know, that since we've been doing this podcast, we've been talking about protests, strikes, rallies, and demonstrations almost on a regular basis. I know that on Saturday evening that the scheduled you know, protest over the judicial overhaul uh, did not take place because of the rocket firing, rocket attacks. Um, so is this strike kind of a compliment? Okay, we couldn't go out Saturday night, so now we're going to close down the cities. What's what's it about? Yeah, I, 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 I don't think so. It's not that Israelis are so excited to strike that they'll make up any excuse to do it, although it does seem that way sometimes. Uh, but I don't think that these these strikes are related to the judicial form protests. Um, it just seems that there are a lot of hot button issues that different segments of the population feel are important enough that they want to make their voices heard about. I, I kind of agree with that. And we, we talked last time a little bit about the, the dairy tax that was going to be uh, implemented. So you've got taxes, you have all sorts of challenges that impact any normal society. In addition to that, you have the 1400 rockets that are being fired from your neighbor uh, into your cities. It seems like it's a constant struggle to just maintain normalcy uh, in the country. But yet, on a positive note, there was normalcy at the Eurovision contest in Liverpool this year. We talked a little bit about it last week in, in previous weeks. A any comments on the results of Eurovision? Not to leapfrog over something different, but I just think it's a great yeah, way to following your train of thought. I do. I'm with you. Um, the So the Israeli representative, Noah Carroll, placed third with her song, Unicorn. This is very exciting for Israel. Um, it's the, you know, best we've done since 2018 when Neta Barzilai won the Eurovision. Um, the, and I think we feel okay about how, how we placed. I think the, the top winner was from, is it Sweden, if I'm not mistaken? Sweden and, and then Finland in second place. Yeah, and I think the one from Sweden is actually historic in being a second time of the same one winning. So, if you, you know, if you don't get first place because somebody is already a ringer, maybe that feels a little better <laughs> somehow. I don't know. But um, just as a tiny way to see how big of a deal it is for Israel, actually, to have our representative do so well, I will just share that Prime Minister Netanyahu tweeted 
to Noah Carroll after her winning to say, uh, I think the quote was that she is phenomenal and will always be number one for us. So in a country this small, when you go to participate and represent your country in a music competition in Europe, the prime minister will publicly congratulate you. Um, so that it does rise to that level of, you know, Israeli public awareness. So it's also a good distraction to all the challenges that are facing Israel today. Um, on the cynicism side, in my mind, one of the reasons why the protests were canceled for Saturday night is everybody was at home watching Eurovision competition and were rooting for Noah. You know, music yeah. can be a very unifying force. Also, we've had so much um, talk since the start of this new government and particularly with the judicial with the judicial reform about the divide between Ashkenazi and Sephardi or Mizrahi Jews in in Israel and Noah Kirill herself maybe bridges that divide because she has uh, one parent who's Ashkenazi and another who's part Mizrahi part Sephardi so everybody can love her and everybody can root for her. So maybe the Eurovision really will bring us back together. I, I didn't know that. So thank you for adding adding that. Um, that's great. Uh, anything else you want to talk about? I know you have a bat mitzvah coming up this Shabbat. Um, anything new? Uh, we do have it coming up. Very exciting. And this, while it's our second child having a B'nai Mitzvah. It's our first time doing it in Israel because we happen to do Yishai's in the States. Um, so this will be new experience, different way of doing it, and hopefully we will all survive the experience. <laughs> well, on behalf of all of our listeners and myself, we just want to wish her a Mazal Tov and uh, Congratulations to you and your husband, Yonatan, in in putting this together. Thank you. I mean, you know, I don't feel like we did too much besides keep Gila alive for the past 12 years, but I guess there's something to be said for that. There is something to be said for that. Uh, anything else you want to share today before we sign off? Um, well, I guess just maybe a teaser that next week we can start talking about Shavuot and we can have lots of dairy-filled comments okay. in our second favorite topic after politics, which is, of course, food. <laughs> well, I'm very excited to uh, always talk about uh, dairy products and cheesecake and, again, <laughs> having to explain to our listeners why this is a why dairy is an important um, ingredient for Shavuot, and I would like to just go back to the fact that there is a nine percent uh, increase of dairy product uh, tax, I think, uh, on um, on products. So we'll talk more about that. And again, thank you all for listening. This has been Israel Rebound, uh, bringing all sorts of great topics: politics, rockets, cheesecake to our listeners around the world. Thank you, Liz, for your time today. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, everyone.